I know I have my brother James over there. I want to introduce my brother James. I want to tell you a little bit about James. I, don't, I told you I didn't want to impinge. I don't want to. Imp- you know, there's a, there's a reformation, a new reformation. You know that, right? We were all moving into a new place, right? A faith. And this today was just a preparation, really, for what James is going to speak about. But I, when I heard James speak, I always want to hear James speak. You hear one? You hear twice, you hear three times, you want to hear it. Because no one really, I yet to meet someone that can really, really connect you to the finished work of Christ. There, I have not yet met. And now, because of these amazing revelations, it's rare. This is why today, and this is why we're doing this. Because we want to move into a new place. We want to be able to change the atmosphere. We want to completely change minds around. And we want to go in the freedom of Christ. And we want to say, I am in Christ. Can we say that? I mean, really. I mean, and this is, it's important. And so it is an honor. It is an honor and a privilege to introduce my brother, our teacher, Grace Teacher, I call him, but he is our teacher speaker also, James Barron. Can you come over? Just, just give, him a, give him love. Give him love. God bless you, James. Here you go, darling. Cool. Thank you very much. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you that you're opening our eyes in this, in this hour and in this generation to things that have been hidden and kept secret and concealed and not known for a long time. And we just thank you, Lord, that you're opening our eyes. Even as in your day, you said many kings and many prophets have desired to see the things that you see, and they did not. But they're now being revealed by the Holy Spirit as you said in the last days that many would understand and that the revelation would come forth and the mystery of God would be known. Lord, we just thank you for this time. This, thank you for Millie's heart, for Millie's work. We pray her, her work would be very fruitful and bear much fruit. And just thank you for, the, for your blessing on this endeavor to spread the good news. And I pray that every person here will have will take something very valuable in their spirit, some revelation, some word, something that will literally change their lives in this, on this day. From all the speakers and all the worship and all that's going on this day, I pray that it's a very special day. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I want to share some thoughts from um, chapter 3 of Galatians. Chapter 3 in the book of Galatians is, is so rich. There is so much there that it's just amazing. Um, I want to take a look at that if you would. And then, but before you do that, um, turn with me if you would to John, the Gospel of John chapter 7. John chapter 7. John chapter 7, verse 37. 37 through 39. John chapter 7, 
verse 37 through 39. And then we're going to go back to Galatians chapter 3. This is a passage where Jesus is actually at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. And he says something in the midst of this celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, which one of the things they did at the Feast of Tabernacles was they were a pouring of water. I believe it was on the seventh day of the feast. They would pour the water uh, seven times. And it was a picture, a foreshadowing of what was coming in the Spirit um, as part of this feast. They didn't understand all that then, but that's what that was. It was pretty powerful. Feast of Tabernacles is awesome. Um, I had this theory about the feast that the first, the first, there's seven feasts. The first three feasts involve the work of Christ, the Passover, Feast of Tabernacles, I mean, the Feast of um, Unleavened Bread, and the, um, what's the third, there's three, uh, I can't even think, that Passover, yeah, Millie, Unleavened Bread and, and First fruits, first fruits, first fruits, unleavened bread, and the Passover. That all speaks of the work of Christ, and the unleavened bread is a celebration of righteousness that He brings. The gift of righteousness, seven celebrations, seven days celebrating perfect righteousness. The um, uh, the Passover itself is a picture of judgment passing over through the blood of the Lamb, and then the first fruits is the resurrection. So it's all about His work in the first three feasts. The menorah candle has these. These seven candlesticks. You, know, you have these three on this side that come like this. Then you have a center candle. Then you have three more. The center candle is, um, the center feast is Pentecost. That's when the spirit was given on Pentecost. It's also when the law was given. The law was given on that day many, many years ago um, that we now, we, we think of the word Pentecost, we think of the spirit, but that was actually the feast 50 days after they went into uh, at Sinai, that's when the law was actually given on, on the, the uh, Feast of Pentecost. That's why the Spirit had to be given on that day, because the Spirit would replace the law. Um, then the last three, uh, which is also pretty, this is an interesting fact, I'm, I'm sure you've heard this before, but when the law was given on the feast of, at the Feast of Pentecost on Sinai, when the law was given by Moses, 3,000 people died. You probably heard this before. It's pretty cool. It's like they died in judgment because you know how Moses comes down from, you know, Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments, you know, and they're like the golden calf. And so 3,000 people died in judgment because they were worshiping a golden calf, thinking that Moses was, you know, where is he? You know, where is Moses? Right. And so 3,000 people died in the giving of the law on the day of Pentecost on Sinai. But in the book of Acts, the scripture says 3,000 people were saved and were given life, which is kind of cool. You know, God's painting a picture that the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. It's a new covenant, a whole new way of looking at things, and it's, it's awesome. Okay, so the middle can- candle is a picture of the Pentecost. My theory about this seven feast thing is this. The last three candlesticks, which are the Feast of Tabernacles, which involve the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Day of Atonement, and the Feast of, or the Feast of Booths is another word for Feast of Tabernacles, uh, Feast of Trumpets, Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, and Day of Atonement, those three things. Those three things involve the, this latter feast. I believe those feasts, see, the first feast have, have something that happened in, in time, in space, on earth. The Passover, it actually happened in time and space. But the moment the Spirit came on Pentecost, 
the sound of a mighty rushing wind came. A door opened to the invisible. I don't think you're going to see the Feast of Tabernacles acted out on earth. Unless it is at the very time of his second coming. But I don't think you're going to see because it already has happened. You see, when that door opened up, all that the Feast of Tabernacles celebrated has been done. We have a high priest that has gone beyond the veil. The Feast of Trumpets is a proclamation of this good news. And the feast, our celebration of dwelling places, our booths, are you. For you have become the dwelling place of God. You are the living stones. You are the tab. God is tabernacling with you now. So what happened in the seven feasts, God basically went from the visible to the invisible. He went from the visible of Jesus coming after the flesh, doing all this on the earth in time and space. But in the middle of the candlestick, the spirit came on Pentecost, a mighty rushing wind. And that which was seen took Second seat to that which is unseen. And the reality of the Feast of Tabernacles is what you and I enjoy every day. Isn't that awesome? That bears witness with my spirit. That's why there was no earthly corresponding event for the Feast of Tabernacles. Because it's not something of this earth. There was an actual event. Pentecost happened on that day. There was an actual event when Jesus walked and did went to the cross and was raised again from the dead, first fruits, Passover, unleavened bread, celebration of, of what he did, bringing righteousness. That happened on the earth. No corresponding event took place on earth to fulfill anything. Feast of Tabernacles. And yet it's all been done because he is our high priest that is going beyond the veil. They did that once a year. Hebrew says this has been done by Christ himself. Now it's done. We can go now boldly beyond the ho- into the Holy of Holies. The veil has been rent. The trumpets are you, you and I proclaiming this awesome good news. And we now celebrate the tabernacle, the tabernacling of God in us and us in him, the celebration of booths. That's why when they did the tabernacle, they would have um, little houses on top of their house. They would, they would build booths out of leaves and so forth, and they would live in there during the celebration because it showed that they lived in a heavenly home above this home. You see? They, they, God said, build the booths above your house because you no longer live here. You live up in the heavens. You see it? And they, were, and they built it with, with certain limbs and, and tree limbs. God said, build, the, build branches so you can look through the branches and see the stars at night. Because that's where you live now. You live in me. This is all a picture of me in the spirit. See? I believe that's it. I think, I think the Feast of Tabernacles, it's not some event we're looking for anymore. And, and God may, you know, really you know, wrap it up with maybe have his, his actual second coming be around that time. That'd be awesome. But, but as far as enjoying the Feast of Tabernacles every day, study the Tabernacles is not some event that's going to happen on earth, but it's already happened. When that spirit fell, when that move, when that sound of a mighty rushing wind, a great door was opened. And that which is unseen became the real. And now we celebrate. We celebrate every day the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, now that's the context. Jesus is, is in the, this Feast of Tabernacles. This further fulfills what I'm saying, or con, con, uh, confirms, I think, what I'm saying here. Because if you read this in John chapter 7, <clears throat> verse 37, 
Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, the reason it says the last day, the great day of the feast, is because the Feast of Tabernacles was seven days, but on the eighth day, the last day, I believe what they did, they poured, if I, if I haven't read this in a while, but I think they poured water once every day for seven days. But the last day of the great feast, they've poured the water seven times in the temple. It was like a, it was a culmination. It was eight, day eight, new beginnings, a whole new reality. It's like pouring it seven times, complete, perfect, awesome, awesome. So this day, the last day of the great feast, Jesus, who made his way to the Feast of Tabernacles, is, it, is there at that moment, and he stood out. He stood up and he cried out. Very few times do we see Jesus crying out loud. In fact, the scripture says when Messiah comes, he will not be like one of these preachers that cry out in the streets and cry out and like Isaiah and cry out and cry out. He will be gentle and meek and he, he will not be known as someone who cries out all the time. This time, he cried out. And he says this, If any man is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Can you just hear him say that? I can hear the Christ say that. He's standing there and he, think about this is a man telling people to come to him, to believe on him. And he's saying the scripture is fulfilled in me, that if you believe on me, out of your innermost being shall flow rivers of living water, of which the tabernacles was a picture. The pouring of that water in that temple was just a picture of the real that was coming in him. You see? And that's already happened. I mean, that happened. Pentecost set that up. And now everybody who believes receives the spirit of God. And that happens just like he said to the woman the Samaritan woman at the well, if you would ask of me, I would give you water to drink and you would never thirst again. If you drink of this water, it shall become in you a spring of water springing up into eternal life. Okay, in the next verse, but this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. You see that? He's talking about rivers of living water coming from your heart. That was not possible until Christ was glorified. Water, living water, the presence of God coming from the, from the heart of a man. When Jeremiah says the heart is deceitfully wicked and evil, how can this be? Because... The prophets prophesied that God would wash us with pure water and give us a new heart. And we would be born from above, born again. And out of that new heart, Jesus said, out of that new heart, rivers of living water would flow because of him. Isn't that awesome? So the spirit was not given in a regenerative way are not given in a way where the heart could be made new, are not given in a way where out of your innermost being, rivers of living water could flow, that was not possible and did not happen until after Jesus came. The Spirit came and lifted on people in the Old Testament, but they did not have a new heart, they were not regenerated, and they did not have what this promise is, the promise of the Father. 
that would come. The promise of the Father, the promise of the Spirit coming in a regenerative way. In other words, in a way where we would be created new, that they did not have that. This is important. They did not have it. That's why when they died, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the prophets, David, Samuel, the reason, when they died, they didn't go to heaven. They descended to Sheol. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he says, Nicodemus, no man has ever entered heaven. No man. Except the son of man who has descended from heaven. He must have preeminence in all things. He had to be the first man to go to heaven. This, this is awesome to think this because you can see what you and I have today. Hebrew says that they did not have what you have. They saw it afar off, the promise of the spirit, the union with God, the new heart. Abraham saw it afar off, but they did not receive it. Hebrew says that they would not be perfect without you without us together. You see that? Jesus descended to Sheol. Peter says he, he descended to, the, to the, where the prisoners were, even those who were there before the flood. From the flood, Peter writes that. That he descended into Sheol to set the captives free who were captive down there. The enemy had him. They could not pass into the heavens until the sacrifice was made on earth. They could not pass. It was the blood on the earth that released them. That's why he says, I have now the keys of Hades, which is another name for Sheol. I have the keys of Hades. He took captivity captive by descending. That's why he told the thief, today you shall be with me in paradise. The word paradise means Abraham's bosom. He descended into paradise. The day, that day that thief went with the Christ down to Abraham's bosom where they were all held captive, but not in pain or suffering. They were in this paradise down there. God had pumped air conditioner down there. I mean, there was waterfalls and beautiful. Jesus described it this way. There was a great gulf between those in Abraham's bosom and those who were outside of Abraham's bosom. Those outside of Abraham's bosom, they yearned for a touch of water on their tongue because it was dry. Because you know why? Because they were, they, were, they were apart from their body, and now they were aware they did not have life. As long as they were in the body, they would be, uh, they would be so, um, what's the word? The senses of the body would mask the, 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 uh, the truth that they did not have life. They would be, uh, what's the word? Uh, uh, when we're stimulated, we're stimulated in the body, you know, whatever, whatever it is, you know, whether it's, uh, money or power or sex or whatever, we're stimulated in this world, not realizing we have no life. But so when they're separated from their body, they never, those, those who did not believe, they now are keenly aware that they had no life. Awaiting the judgment, the scripture says that Sheol shall give up her dead in the last, in the, at the very end, and those in Sheol will be judged before the throne of God. But those who believed, God separated, God who knows the heart separated those who believed, had faith in their heart. They opened their eyes into a place, a beautiful place, still not with eternal life. But they had God made sure that they felt like they had life, that they had nourishment, encouragement, and comfort in the Abraham's bosom, awaiting the work of Messiah. Isn't that awesome? And he descended, and he set, set captives free, captivity free, and brought them up through that realm. And that's when that Abraham's bosom closed in and was no more. And now the believer, absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord immediately. It's awesome. And they are our cloud of witnesses. See, he brought them in. He brought them through. I mean, first Jesus himself had to ascend to the Father. He had to be the first man. Then he 
brought them through, and some of them even, the scripture says, some of, some of them even walked into their, the city of Jerusalem to their, 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 their family and their friends, and they said, he has released us. He's the one, and then they would disappear. Isn't that amazing? I mean, after the resurrection, they would appear in Jerusalem on their way up to the heavens. On the way up, they would appear in Jerusalem. It's in the scripture. They would appear and say to their friends and relatives, he's the one. And they were like, Uncle Abraham, you know, Uncle whatever. <laughs> you know, Grandfather Joseph, he has released us. He is the one, the promised one. And they would disappear. And they would go into the heavens. Can you imagine the father's love waiting for his kids to finally get to heaven? Can you imagine the, all those kids running? I mean, he was there with them in Sheol. David said, if I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. He was there with them, but not, he couldn't welcome them into his home, his domain, his realm, his heaven, until the Christ came. And then after Jesus accomplished all things, God's intent, God's heart to bring many sons into glory. Can you see them just coming toward him and just all coming up behind the Christ, behind the work of the Christ all possible now with Abraham's bosom dissolving and this opening up to the other realm now, heaven opened up to them, all clouds of witnesses. Awesome! Unbelievable. And that's what we go to the moment we die now. There is no Abraham's bosom for the believer now because the work has been done. In fact, you're already in in the heavens. That's what's so awesome about the gift of the Spirit. Okay, I say that. Let's go back to Galatians I say that because, saints, you know the the big thing with the new covenant? The big thing with the new covenant is the spirit. The promise of the spirit is big. It is really the promise of God himself. It is life. It is life eternal. It is union with God. It is new creation. It is new heart. It is joy unspeakable. It is everything. The spirit. The promise of the father. This was not possible. The spirit could not be given until Jesus was glorified. So now let's look at this. If you, if you see that, that Paul is, is telling us that hidden in the life of Abraham was the beginning of this new covenant. This pro, it was a prototype of the new covenant, sort of like the seed of the new covenant. He takes what happened with Abraham in the book of Galatians and tells us how, how the law was added, but it was only added for a temporary period of time. First of all, it was added. It was added much later after God had made a promise to Abraham and ratified that promise and confirmed it. The law was added for another reason, Paul tells us, and then it ended. It had a beginning and an end. And it's so cool to see that the, um, the law was never given to the Gentile. I mean, it's really, if you, if you really think about it, all this discussion of whether under the law or not under the law, I mean, think about it. First of all, it was not even given to the Gentile. It was only given to the Jew. And it was only given to a, a select Number of Jews. Only the Jews that were brought out of Egypt. It began on Sinai. And all the Jews who were under that covenant through the death of Jesus on the cross. When the veil was written too. When God said, that's it. It's done. Law's over. 
That's the only people on the earth that ever had the law. Gentiles never had it. And the only Jews that had it were the ones from Sinai until the cross. It's really, it's awesome to think of it like that because you see, wow, what are we doing arguing about the law? That's what even for us as Gentiles, and it certainly wasn't for us now because it even ceased to be for the Jew way back on Mount Moriah. Long, long time ago. Because that's how God thinks. It was added until the seed should come, the Christ. It was added. So from Sinai until the seed came, the Christ, was the law running parallel with this promise of Abraham for a reason, to make sin exceedingly sinful, to make transgressions increase, to prepare the people for a gift of righteousness. But it ended when Jesus died. And that's when the new covenant began. Awesome. Okay. All right, let's look at this in chapter 3 of Galatians. Remember, the big thing with the new covenant is the spirit, which Abraham did not have. He did not have the spirit of God given to him in a regenerative way. He was not born again. He did not have what you have. He did not have a new heart. He did not have the spirit coming out of his innermost being. He had faith, yes, but he did not have what you have. It's awesome. He has it now, but he did not have it then. Okay, chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he then who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. You see how that's a foreshadowing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith by saying all the nations? The scripture is saying all the nations will be blessed in you, Abraham, because this way of faith would be spread to other nations, and they, all who would believe would be blessed with Abraham. Verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You see it? What is the blessing of Abraham? The blessing of Abraham is righteousness. That's the essence of the blessing, the blessing of Abraham. It's, it's where God, count, God counted 
Abraham righteous because he believed when God said, look at the stars and see if you can count the stars because that's how many children you're going to have. And he had no children. And he believed that God was able to do it somehow. If you can count the stars, that's how many children you're going to have, Abraham. And he believed God. And he had no kids. And his wife was past the age. And getting there, she even the actual fulfillment of the birth of Isaac was 20 years later. He tried to help God out, you know, with Ishmael and Hagar. And that was the whole picture of the law and the flesh and and the works of of the flesh. But... But that, that's, how, that's how it happened. That's how God reckoned him righteous because he just said, I don't know how you're going to do it, God, but I look at these stars and you must be a great God. You can do anything. Look at these stars twinkling in the sky. Galaxies. I believe you could do it. And God said, surely in blessing you, I will bless you. I count you righteous, Abraham, because you believe. You believe. So the blessing of Abraham is righteousness by faith. The curse, on the other hand, the curse of the law is unrighteousness because of our works or lack of works. We can't be perfect. So the curse of the law is unrighteousness. And if you try to, try to get righteousness by the law, you'll, you're, you're under the curse of you'll be always unrighteous, 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 not good enough, not good enough, not good enough. But if you are under the blessing of Abraham, you simply believe that God has made you righteous. And then that blessing qualifies you for the gift or the promise of the Spirit. See, the, Paul says that the, the blessing of Abraham might come upon us who believe in order that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. God can only give his presence. God can only um, recreate us anew. God can only give us this life if we are righteous. And so he gives us first the righteousness that we need to receive the Spirit, and then he gives us the Spirit. He does it all. Isn't that awesome? Okay, this is so cool. This is... This is um, kind of where I want to get to right here. Verse 15. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant or contract, yet when it has been ratified, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. Verse 17. What I'm saying is this. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator which is Moses, until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Remember that, that statement, saints. The law was added until the seed should come. When Christ came, the law was done because he would fulfill all things. Look at this. Verse 20. Now, a mediator is not, one, not for one party only, whereas God is only one. We're going to come back to that. This is an awesome statement. 
Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. Now, look, look at that verse right there, saints. If a law had been given which was able to impart life, righteousness would have indeed been based on law. That's a reference to the work of, of the Spirit. In other words, he's saying the, imp- the impartation of life is synonymous with the promise of the Spirit. So he's saying it just in different words. He's saying if there had been a law that could have imparted life or if there had been a law that could have given you the promise of the Spirit, you see? So what the essence of this promise of the Spirit is, the essence of it is life. Life. God's life. God's life where you can be created new, uh, raised in him, joined to him. Um, God's life that is eternal. See? So it's like that's what he's saying there. That if, you know, if, if that was possible, yes, life would have been imparted or the promise of the Spirit would have been given or synonymous terms. Verse 22, but the Scripture has shut up all men under sin that the promise, the promise of, the, of the Spirit of life, by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Isn't that cool? So it's simple faith which qualifies us. Simple faith brings the blessing of Abraham in our life, which is the gift of righteousness, which qualifies you now for the promise of the Spirit of life. Awesome. Okay. Verse 23, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the law, being shut up to the faith, which later was to be revealed. Verse 23. Now, does this mean that faith was not, I've, I've said this before, but um, it says here faith was, faith was going to be revealed. Look at that again. It says, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. So while they were under the law, this thing, this, this way of faith was not yet revealed. What Paul is saying there, he's not saying that they didn't, know, they didn't know faith in God. They didn't understand faith in God because they understood faith in God in terms of faith, trusting God to fight their battles and the enemies in the promised land, faith in God to provide for man in the wilderness, faith in God to provide and help and secure and lead them and so forth. They believed in faith in God for these things. But the one thing that was never known was the thing that was hidden and not revealed was faith for righteousness because it didn't make sense. What do you mean? You can't believe your way into righteousness. What do you believe to get righteous? There was nothing to believe. Even the, even the law that had the sacrifices of bulls and goats and so forth, those were not done in faith. That was laws and statutes that they, they basically followed the law. The law says take a dove for this, take a lamb for this, take a goat for this, do it this way, bring it here, do it this day, on this holy day, this day. Those were all laws. And, and this business of people saying, oh, they did it in faith, looking for the coming of the Messiah. No, they didn't. They had no idea. Even their own, his own disciples didn't even know why he was talking about dying. They, they were confused. They didn't know. They weren't doing sacrifices of bulls and goats in looking to the future for the coming of the Christ. No. That was all law. Faith, this way of faith, righteousness by faith was not revealed until Christ came because there was nothing to believe for righteousness until Jesus died on the cross. And the moment he died on the cross, the word could go out, the good news, that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the fulfillment of all that was a picture, of shadows of the good thing to come. Bulls and goats can only cover sin, but this one takes it away. Do you believe? Amen. And for the first time in the history of the world, righteousness could be given to man by faith. So faith was revealed. That kind of faith. A faith that leads to righteousness. First time ever. No one ever put those two together. I mean, righteousness was always a function of obedience to commands. Think it logically. Righteousness means you're doing 
right things. So what do you mean believe to be righteous? That's impossible. I must do to be righteous. I must do to be righteous. So righteousness in the mind of the Jew was always a function of obedience to commandments. Always, always, always. That's why the scripture says the Jew who sought righteousness stumbled on the stumbling stone, which was Christ, the gift of righteousness through faith. The Gentiles who were not looking for righteousness, not trying to be obedient to get righteousness, found righteousness because they simply believed in the Christ. Isn't that awesome? Okay, so here is, here is the, um, where are we? Okay. Verse 24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The law was added until the seed should come. Verse 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, immersed, have clothed yourselves with Christ. That's a reference of not just water baptism, but that's where Paul says we have all been baptized by one spirit into Christ. The spirit of God has baptized, moved us into union with Christ. We have all been made to drink of one spirit. You've been, you've been clothed with Christ. You've been put inside of him, in him. You're in him, in Christ. Your life is now hidden with Christ inside of God, and Christ is now inside of you. See, you have clothed yourself with him because you're inside of him. He's like your clothes around you. You're in, you're in him, and he's in you. Verse 27, we'll do it again. For all of, all of you who were baptized or immersed into the Christ have clothed yourselves with the Christ. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. This visible has given way to the invisible. That great door has swung open and the Feast of Tabernacles is now fulfilled. In the spirit, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, Greek or Scythian, slave or free. It has translated from the kingdom of this darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son, a new reality. The people of the prince, both Jew and Gentile, the prince of peace, a new people, a new race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. A new reality. The truth. This is the truth. This is the reality he has brought. He brought us. So this is, and now you are all sons and daughters because of this awesome work of God. Verse 29. And now if you belong to Christ or if you are inside of him, then you are Abraham's seed. Heirs according to the promise. What? You see what he just said? Look look back. Look at this. This is so awesome. Look at verse 16 again. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say unto seeds as referring to many, but to one and to your seed. That is, he was referring to the Christ. Now, jump to 29 again. And now, if you are in that Christ, if you belong to Christ, if you are immersed in Christ, if you are clothed with Christ, then you have become Abraham's seed. You have become like the Christ. It all flows through him to you because you're inside of him. It never was a promise to you individually. It was always to him. The promise was given to the seed, to Christ. And that's what I want to talk about just briefly, is that this, this covenant was not a covenant between God and us. Look, at, look down here. This is so cool. Look at, look at, look at verse, um, 
Look at verse uh, 19 of chapter 3, Galatians 19. He goes, he goes, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. All the promises were made to the Christ. Everything was made to him, not to us. It was made to him. See, God promised to Abraham and to his seed. Why to Abraham? Because he believed. So it, it's a combination of a believer and Christ. A believer in Christ. If you believe, then what is promised to Christ becomes yours because then you are placed in him and you get the blessing of Abraham and therefore the promise of the Spirit. See how, see how it works? So it's like it's all by faith, but all the promises are to the Christ, to the seed. So when the seed came to whom all the promises were made to the Christ, that's when the law was done with. But look at how he said this. He said the law was instituted by angels and by the hands of a mediator until the seed should come. If you'll notice in the book, in the Old Testament, they always have, when the law was given, it says the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord appeared, the angel of the Lord. God did not personally institute the covenant of law. He did not personally institute it. He had agents do it for him because that was not going to be the final covenant. He wanted to come and do the real covenant himself. The Lord himself. Hebrews chapter 2, the Lord himself came. Angels did the old covenant. Angels, God's agents. God sent his attorneys, the angels, to do this contract with Israel. And Israel sent their attorney, Moses. Moses was their attorney. And they sat at the table, the angels speaking for God and Moses speaking for Israel. And they entered into this covenant of law. Whereas if they do good, they get blessed. And if they do bad, they get cursed. It was a covenant between God through these agencies with the people. And they failed miserably. They weren't supposed to succeed. They were spo- In fact, God says the reason I gave you the law, that's, that sin might increase, that transgressions might increase, so that they would come to the end of themselves and realize we can't do this. We can't do this. And so now the new covenant comes, and this is a covenant that God has made, not with the people, but with his son. He's referring to this covenant that God ratified with Abraham. If we can look at it real quick, look at Genesis if you would, Genesis 15 is so awesome. You know, I've asked Jewish people in the past what they think this is, and they have yet to give me an answer. They don't know. They don't, it doesn't make sense. They don't, they don't understand what happened. This is an awesome, awesome scene that only you can understand because you believe in Christ. And Galatians talks about it. This is so cool. Look at Genesis chapter 15. It's so cool. Let's just start verse 1, chapter 15 of Genesis. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying, this is before God changed his name. Do not fear, Abraham. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abraham said, O Lord God, what what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, not even my son? He's just a servant. He's not even my son. In other words, Abraham is thinking, it's really pointless to give me anything because I can't leave it with any of my kids. I have no kids. I can't leave an inheritance with anybody. You know, what's... And verse 3, and Abraham said, since thou hast given me no offspring, no children to me, no one who is born in my house is my heir. And verse 4 Then, behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man, this servant of yours, will not be your heir, but one shall come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. 
That is symbolic of the promise of a new creation from your own body, from your own body. Life shall come out of death. That's a promise of the new creation. Verse 5. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, him, So shall your descendants be. And then he believed in the Lord. And God reckoned it to him as righteousness. That's what we were talking about earlier. This is what Paul talks about in Galatians. Now watch this. It's so cool. And then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land, to possess it. And he said, oh, Lord God, how how may I know that I shall possess it? How shall I know? And so he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And then he brought all these to him and he cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. And the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. What's happening here, saints, is, as you know, is God's about to cut a covenant with Abraham, or Abraham, he didn't change his name yet. But God's about to cut a covenant with Abraham, and what they would do in that day, they would take animals and cut them in half, and put half, either side of the animals, it would be three over here, three over here, three over here. The animals would actually be cut in half, and the blood would be, would be shed. And what the two people would do when they made a covenant, they would walk between the pieces of the animals that were cut in half as a promise that we are one as these two halves are. And if we, if anything separates us, we're, we, it's death to us that we are committing ourselves to you forever. And that it's that, that we are one as one as can be. And this is, and if without this covenant, um, I die. It's, it's like there's no alternative. This is it. And they would walk in the figure in a figure eight through it, the, the sign of eternity, of infinity, and they would walk in and out for the pieces, and they would be uh, making this covenant with each other and, 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 um, and commit to each other, okay? God is doing this for Abraham, okay? Now, notice, notice the... Oh, I'm sorry. Notice the... Um, notice the... Um, the birds of prey, verse 11, and the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. That is a picture of the enemy. Vultures try to, to hinder this from happening. And sometimes, as Millie was saying, sometimes we just have to say, no, Satan, no, get behind us. Get behind us. We're not going to listen to the, the way of the world. We're not going to listen to this, this other way of thinking. So the birds of prey were trying to interfere with this awesome covenant. So, but Abraham drove them away. So cool. Okay, look at this. Verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham. And behold, a terror and a great darkness fell upon him. He basically had a bad dream. And we see later the bad dream is about he was, he was being shown that one day his people would be in bondage in Egypt. He was, God was showing in the future that his people one day would go through a lot of suffering in Egypt. But anyway, so he fell into a, good, a deep sleep, verse 13. And God said to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, that's Egypt, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge that nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. But as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried at a good old age. But then in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. All right, this is so cool. 
if this is a covenant between Abraham and God, you would think Abraham's going to walk between the pieces because God's cutting a covenant with Abraham. But this is what happens that is so unique that I've asked Jewish people what this means, and they don't have an answer for it. Watch this. It came about when the sun had appeared. No, I'm sorry. It came about that when the sun had set, and it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Wow. Here's Abraham. He goes into a deep sleep first, and he has this dream, a foreboding dream, and God interprets the dream for him, and he says, your people are going to go to a strange land and be enslaved there for 400 years, but I'm going to rescue them and bring them back to this land. Because remember, the whole point of this covenant was to to confirm to Abraham that he's going to inherit the land. So God is explaining, yeah, it's not going to look good at first, but it's going to turn out great. As for you, you're going to go to your fathers in peace. Don't worry about it, but I'm just going to tell you what's happening in the future. You know, that's, that's what that was all about. All right, so Abraham's in this dream, and God's interpreting this dream, and now it gets real dark because sun sets, the sun is set, really dark, really dark, and then Abraham wakes up, and he sees something going between the pieces. He's not walking between the pieces. Yet it says in the next verse, God that day cut covenant with Abraham. But he saw two things going through the pieces. He saw a smoking furnace and a burning torch. I believe, saints, the smoking furnace was the father. The father cannot be seen except through the son. So the son is the torch, the light. No man can know the Father except through the Son. So the Son was the torch, the light of the world. And so basically it was the Father and the Son cutting covenant. It was the seed who was to come. It was God was showing Abraham, this covenant is not between me and people, not between me and just men. This covenant is between me and my Son, between me and the seed who would come. That's why in Galatians when we, remember the verse we read in Galatians that in the old covenant, they had a mediator. They had angels who mediated for God and Moses mediated for the people because he had two parties. You had two parties in that covenant. Right under that verse in Galatians, it says, but you don't need a mediator when there's only one party to a contract. Isn't that awesome? The new covenant has only one party because when God cuts covenant with God, then there's only one God for as, as Paul writes, for God is one. God is one. So in this great mystery of God cutting covenant with himself for us, he says, from this covenant that I cut with my son, with myself, God cutting covenant with God for man, from this covenant goes forth one unilateral, unconditional promise. And all who believe this one unconditional, unilateral promise receive the blessing of Abraham and the gift of the Spirit. Isn't that awesome? And that's, what, and that's when we eat the bread and drink the wine now. We, we celebrate the covenant that he cut with the Father. That's why when he came into this world, before he washed their feet, he said, I've come into this world, and now I leave this world, and I go back to the Father. It's a big circle. He came into this world. He accomplished the work that it was sent to do and taken away our sin, and then he returned to the Father, 
a complete circle. He sat down on the right hand of God. It's a closed deal. The covenant is done. Nothing can undo what God did with God. See, what God did in himself for us. Now we're beneficiaries. We do not, we do not have a covenant between us and God. We are merely beneficiaries. We are uh, heirs of what he did because now by the Spirit we're placed inside the Christ. And as he is, so are we. And if we are in him, then we are the seed to whom the promises have been made. Isn't that cool? So it's like, um, it just to me, it just helps, helps us see that all this, all this discussion about whether we're under the law, we're under the law or not, under the law, it's like, it's, it's like you want to just back up and say, wait a minute. First of all, it was given for a temporary time until the seed should come. And it was only given to the Jew, not to the Gentile. And it was only given to that, those group of Jews that lived from Sinai until the death of Christ on the cross. So what are we talking about? What are we talking about? The law, when that's not even what we should be talking about is the fulfillment of a covenant that was ratified by God. And that's why Paul says, even in a man's covenant, a contract, no one adds to it or takes away from it once it's ratified. God ratified the covenant with the seed that day with Abraham. He ratified it. And therefore, Paul says, the law who, that came 430 years later cannot add to it or take away from it. For the, for the inheritance is by faith. Otherwise, it's, it's not a faith. It, it, the law cannot change what God has already said. It's by faith. The promise. Hope I'm making it clear. So anyway, um, and then to see that part where it's, it's really um, a covenant between the Father and the Son and not between us directly. We are, we are beneficiaries of a covenant they cut and have finished, and now we just, it flows, the benefits flow to us as heirs, joint heirs with Christ, heirs of God and joint heirs because of what he did, and we remember him with the bread and the wine, remembering the covenant that he cut. And, um, and now we have what we have that gift of the Spirit, the promise of the Spirit from our innermost being flowing from our heart that Abraham did not have, but now he has in heaven. He has that experience now, but they did not have before Jesus came, for the Spirit could not be given until Jesus was glorified. Woo! Lord, just thank you for helping us see these things. I pray that this would be an encouragement to the saints to ponder and to see how awesome you planned this all along, that you would not put any burden on us to do anything for you have done it all, and you simply say, believe. Believe on me. Come to me, and I will give you the blessing of Abraham, the gift of righteousness because of your faith, and that qualifies you for the promise of the Spirit. As Jesus cried out on that last day of the great feast, all you who are thirsty, come to me and believe on me. For as the scripture says, out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Rivers of living water. Thank you, Lord, for this awesome reality. Help us celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles every day. The invisible reality. Let us blow the trumpets of this good news. Let us go beyond the veil 
as on the day of atonement, as our high priest after the order of Melchizedek has accomplished all things and now beckons us to go beyond the veil, for you are our anchor that has gone beyond the veil, our forerunner after the order of Melchizedek. And we celebrate that we are the tabernacle of God. We have been made the dwelling place of God, the living stones, the true living temple that you said, I'll raise it up in three days. And in my father's house, there are many dwelling places fulfilled now. The celebration, the celebration of the dwelling places is an ongoing invisible reality now with no corresponding visible event on earth but the shouts of joy and the fruit of the Spirit. Amen.